0: Greetings, this is James Stansel of the New Books Network's African American Studies channel. Today, I'm going to be talking with Thomas Aiello, a professor at Valdosta State University. His book, Battle for the Souls of Black Folk, Battle for the Souls of Black Folk. W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington and the Debate that Shaped the Course of Civil Rights. This is an outstanding book. It's 600 pages of documentation. Great research and great information about this important time in American history. So enjoy yourself, sit back, listen, and listen to some great scholarship by a great scholar. Hello, this is James Stansel, and welcome back to the New Books Network and the African American Studies Channel. Today we have the pleasure of talking to a wonderful author, a Valdosta State University history professor, Dr. Thomas Ayello he's gonna talk with us today about his book, The Battle for the Souls of Black Folks. W. E. B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, and the debate that shaped the course of civil rights. Welcome, Dr. Thomas Aiello. Thank you.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate Absolutely.
0: You me. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And I just wanted to uh, get you to talk about your book a little bit. Your your book's brand new. When did it when did it officially uh come out?
1: It came out this summer,
0: so Very relatively recently. Very recently. And it's uh, on Prager and um, it's a 500 page book. Very well researched, very well done. And, you know, before we kind of get into your book, I would love for you to, if you don't mind, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and and your background.
1: Uh, Sure. Well, I uh, I come from uh, North Louisiana. uh, Okay. a place where uh, much like South Georgia, where I live now. Was right. is a place that is beset by uh, rural poverty uh, and abject racism. <laughs> oh. um, okay. uh, but it's the kind of place that if you live there, you don't and you're white, you don't see it, you don't notice it, you don't understand. And so when I left to go to college and got the chance to look back at my hometown from the distance of of uh, college you kind of see the uglier parts of the town in which you were raised that you never really noticed because it was always the only thing you had ever known. And sure. uh, that kind of, you know, kind of led me into uh, thinking more about uh, uh, black history as right. as a lived phenomenon in the South, especially um, after college, I worked uh, at the state uh, museum uh, of of Arkansas okay. for a while before going to grad school and getting my PhD at the University of Arkansas um, okay. in 2007. Uh, after that, I, I taught a little bit at um, the University of Louisiana in Lafayette, and then, okay. and then I came over here to Valdosta, where I'm part of the History Department and the African American Studies Program, um, and been doing that ever since. And here you are. Here I am. That's right. <laughs> Where did you attend undergrad? Uh, a small college called Henderson. Uh, okay, in um, Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Wow. Uh, okay. Small small college town, small liberal arts college uh, in the middle of Arkansas. I you know I have um, I I am a I am a southerner. I have never really been outside of the South. You know, lived outside of the South. I am. I stayed in Louisiana and Arkansas almost my entire life until I came over here to Georgia. So, okay, uh, really. You're definitely a,
0: an SEC man. I right? am very
1: much an <laughs> SEC man. Uh, the Hogs
0: are undefeated so far
1: this year, and let's All talk right. on wood before we keep going to make sure
0: that continues. That sounds good to me. And I'm also a son of the South myself, uh, North Carolina born and bred. Tar Hill born and bred, and when I die, I will be Tar Hill dead. I understand that. I understand. As we we like to say. Um, Were there any uh, influential figures or or mentors or anyone that really um, maybe influenced you in your academic career?
1: Oh, there are so many. So many, Um, you know, writing books uh, for a living, you realize very soon once you start doing that kind of thing that um, it takes it takes a bunch of people. It's not just a single phenomenon. It is it is a collaborative effort that one person happens to get their name on. And for all of the, absolutely. Absolutely, all, for all the books that I've written, I, I, there have been so many people that have helped. Probably the most important uh, academic mentor to me sure, sure. is uh, a woman named Mary Farmer Kaiser, who is now the dean of the graduate school at the University of Louisiana, okay. but okay. who is who was the 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 person. Who helped me when I started graduate school? When I when I went to graduate school, I, I did so not coming straight out of college, not assuming mm-hmm. that I would ever do this for a living. It seemed very far fetched at the time, and to have people kind of show you the way through what academia and writing re- right. is is necessary. I and mean, so many people don't who who have the ability to to kind of do this kind of stuff. Don't have that person who says, this is how this is done. And once you get the rules, it all turns out
0: to be a lot easier than everybody assumes. That's a great point, Tom. And, you know, we talked a little bit off air about my nonprofit work with Intellectual Incorporated in the Houston area. And hopefully we can we can get you down. Um, to work with some of our students there, but exactly what you're talking about. People have the skill set and the ability, but they may not have that mentor or that push to help them get there.
1: You know, we, 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 we call that, we call that demystification where, where for a lot of students, college or beyond college or writing meaningful stuff seems hard because it's, they don't understand the, the rules. But once they get in there and they actually see what it is, they say, oh, this isn't such a big deal. I can do this. Right. It's just a matter of having somebody kind of show them the rules. I mean, if you don't know the right. rules, football is just 22 guys running around on a patch of grass. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, the football fakes start, starts to make sense, and, and I think that is – Mary did that for me for
0: sure. Awesome. So, yeah, well, maybe we'll have to make sure that we send her a copy of this podcast, right? I'll let her know. Absolutely. So she, absolutely. So she can know that uh, young Tom did good. Right? She <laughs> <laughs> still
1: knows. She still gets reminded of that. Every, I still make sure she knows
0: every once in a while. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> um, would you like to give a shout out to any of your students, uh, present or past, Valdosta State or any of your other stops? Absolutely. You know, my students have been absolutely wonderful. And actually, I've
1: had uh, graduate research assistant help that has helped with some of my more recent stuff, oh, okay. including this. Jenny Smith, who is now a doctoral candidate up at Notre Dame, was a master's student here who um, did a lot of work for me and okay. has helped made tracking down a lot of the more obscure stuff, especially in the Battle for the Souls of Black Folk, a lot right. easier. Uh, it's, uh, again, I mean, these things really are a collaborative
0: effort. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I'm glad you mentioned that, too, um, Tom, because sometimes people don't understand that they see your name on the cover and they don't understand all the people that it took to to get there.
1: So many, you know, this this the, the book publishing process is it's about 18 different layers before you get from manuscript to, to, to book. And uh, there are so many people that help along the way. Uh, too many to name, but but certainly uh, sure. these things are these things are group efforts to be sure. All right.
0: So Jenny Smith up there, uh, Jenny Smith, Dr. Ayello, he he did not forget you. So he gave you a shout out in his podcast.
1: He still doesn't <laughs> like Notre Dame, Jenny. He still doesn't like <laughs> Notre Dame. <laughs>
0: so you know, speaking of your most recent book, um, the battles of the souls, or excuse me, the battles for the souls of black folk. Um, can you just you know maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what was your influence? What made you decide to write on this specific topic at this time?
1: Well, I the the debate that happens between right. Du Bois and Booker Washington are is is so important and so seminal to how uh, the narrative of Black intellectual history progresses in the twentieth century, and right. yet when people talk about their relationship, it's almost always ancillary to something else. It is a, a small part of a biography of Du Bois or Washington, or it is uh, a debate that talks about Du Bois's frustration with Tuskegee, or it comes in the right. context of the NAACP it's it's very rare that you have that conversation that they have, a really a sustained 20-year conversation between two of the most important intellectual figures at the turn of the century, given pride of place and have it be kind of the dominant part of the narrative and just kind of mm-hmm. have that conversation be the subject rather than kind of something that is akin to the subject. And so okay. the idea was to kind of flesh out their debate and see kind of how it projects um, backwards and forwards into the narrative of black rights and how okay. leaders have discussed black rights, frankly, from, from the antebellum era all the way till today.
0: Okay. Well, I think you definitely accomplished your goal. This is an outstanding text, okay. and I think and you are welcome, and I think it will be used as a reference for years to come. And you know, we talked a little offline about uh US history classes, specifically like advanced placement US history classes where they talk just briefly about Du Bois and and Washington and maybe, you know, with your text here, um that conversation can get a little more deep, you know, in those K twelve classes. I would
1: like that, you know, as uh, as someone who teaches African American studies, um I I am I am every semester I am I am surprised by the number of people who aren't very familiar uh, with they're familiar with the names, I think of the boys in Washington, but as far as their positions, their stances kind of what they stood for and how they were very different. um, They don't really understand that. I mean, most people Mm lump them together because they were black leaders at the turn of the century,
0: not knowing
1: that they were completely antithetical to one another, did not like one another that, you know, you know we always we always we always kind of make the claim that africa is a country right that that people when right. talk about <laughs> africa they just group it all together because it's easier for them to think of it as one place instead of a myriad of places which it actually is i think that's what we do uh um in kind of d- debates about uh black philosophy black activism those kind of things where black leaders really debate each other and do not have the same positions, but because they're black thinkers. History often kind of lumps them together, which is which is something that would never do, never do for white thinkers of the time and kind of drawing the, the distinctions between some of the black thinkers, who I mean these guys the boys in washington were so much more nuanced than they usually get credit for they hated each other and and and, and, and actively campaigned against each other's ideas i think it, i think it helps a lot of students to know that there isn't historical civil rights position there are actually a bunch of them and not all of them agree and right, all of them have right. very different ways of doing things or different ideas about how to get things done. And I think we're better off understanding the nuances of those debates and realizing that it's okay to disagree with commonly held positions. Uh, we've been doing it since
0: time immemorial. Oh, wow. Great points. And I, I, I think that your book is definitely going to be a great addition to the Academy and to, you know, public thought about these issues. Thank you. And so, again, you know, I, w- I want to personally thank you for this. You know, um, Du Bois has been you know, one of my inspirations uh, for my academic work for years. And, you know, when I saw your book here, you know, as, we, as I mentioned to you before offline, I was excited to have the opportunity to, to talk with you and, and share your research and your work with the, uh, the, the general audience. And again, the book that we're talking about um, on this podcast is The Battle for the Souls of Black Folk. W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, and the debate that shaped the course of civil rights by Valdosta State University Professor Thomas Aiello. Um, He's taken a few minutes to talk with us here today about his work and his research and his most recent book that came out this summer. And I highly recommend it. Definitely check it out if you get a chance. It's 500 pages of outstanding scholarship, uh, primary sources, good research being done by this African-American studies scholar and history professor. The Battle for the Souls of Black Folks, Dr. Thomas Aiello, Valdosta State University. And so if you don't mind, sir, maybe we can get into, you know, more specifics if you want to hit some of the, the key points or, or key things there uh, that you could share with the audience that they can look for when they when they read your book.
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, well, there, there definitely is an arc to the story. Um, right. You know, and it, though, though Du Bois and Washington do have histories before they come into contact with one another... In reality, this story starts in 1895. You know, I always I always think that 1895 is one of the seminal years for the development of black thought in the 20th century. In February of 1895, Frederick Douglass dies, and he had been the unquestioned kind of fount of knowledge for black America. Yes. He was the guy that could get an audience with anybody in the country anytime he wanted. And when he dies, there is this real power vacuum at the top of that leadership position, and a lot of are going to buy for it. It is also in 1895 when a young W.E.B. Du Bois gets his PhD from Harvard, becoming the first black man to earn a PhD wow. in history. Even though he, we know him as a sociologist. His PhD. There wasn't a discipline for sociology. Sure. So he actually got his his, his PhD in history. Um, and it is that very same year, uh, in 1895, uncoincidentally, that Booker Washington goes to the Cotton States Exposition in Atlanta and mm-hmm. gives the speech that's going to end up making him famous. Um, Washington was very much a social climber. Um he had grown up, born into slavery very famously, um, attended Hampton, and became a very devoted uh, follower of the notion of industrial education, the kind right, of education right, that was right, being right. provided at Hampton, that that learning was practical, not theoretical. right that We do not right. need the liberal arts, or if we do, we need them as secondary to job training and the kinds of things that are going to create an economic infrastructure for both Right. America. He ends up leaving Hampton and creating Tuskegee, and while that does very much make waves from Virginia to Alabama, he isn't—he doesn't still have a national platform. It is going to be in 1895, after Frederick Douglass dies, and as as Du Bois is defending his dissertation, that Washington stands up and gives a speech that we know as the Atlanta Compromise, right. Right in which he. Accepts segregation as a temporary accommodation, and in return mm-hmm. wants this kind of uh, kind of white structural support for black education and social uplift right. and some economic concessions mm-hmm. and things like that. That makes him uh, a celebrity uh, throughout the country. This is just the kind of activism that white southerners want to hear. Sure. And so, yes. And so he will become very well known in all communities because yes. of that speech. And as a matter of fact, after he gives it, the young Du Bois writes him a note congratulating him on that speech. Wow. He says, Dr. Washington, I just want to say congratulations. It was a message well sent. Of course, for the rest of his life, he will hate that speech. But as a, as, a, as a grad student, and that might just be because grad students suck up to professors. I, I was
0: know. just thinking the same thing. <laughs> you
1: know, that does very much happen. So that, might be yes, it that he actually <laughs> originally kind of likes it. But relatively soon, we start to see a change where Du Bois decides that that is not the way to go. Du Bois, of course, has a very different background. Boys grows up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Um, he grows up in a largely white community. While he does experience some racism, he does not experience the kind of overt, ugly racism that people like Washington live with from day one. Um, he is solidly middle class. He doesn't, his life does, is not reflective of what a black Southerner's life was in the 19th oh, okay. century. And he has opportunities that simply others do not. He ends up going down to Fisk and doing well there, going back to Harvard. He does grad work in Germany, comes back and gets a PhD. This is not the typical black experience. No, and so these two guys, he's also, by the way, 12 years younger than Booker Washington. Okay, right, And so right. there's an age gap. There is an education gap. There is a north-south gap. There is an, uh, a, a class gap. These guys are kind of built to think differently, mm-hmm. and they are going to start doing that. the The break, the real break that comes uh, between them, can we can really start to see it happen initially in 1898, three okay. years after that initial speech that makes Washington famous. Um, mm-hmm. Both of these guys are on the board of a private school in Alabama called Coaliga. Okay. It is a, um, a secondary school. Uh, of course, Alabama not, is not providing funding for uh, black public schools. And so, you know, these kind of private charitable organizations are the best way to get rural black Alabamans a chance to go to school. But this guy who is running it is a friend of Du Bois and believes Mm -hmm. very much in this new sociological model that Du Bois is putting out, which says segregation is not okay under any circumstances. And that the best position for black activists to have is that we need to push back against these kinds of things that relegate us to inferior positions. Mm -hmm. And because that guy became a friend of Du Bois... Washington drops out of the school. Wow. Gets rid of his funding and doesn't help. And in Alabama, that matters because Tuskegee is it in Alabama. Right. While Alabama State has been founded, Alabama State is not what it is going to become. And when you think about black education, in Alabama, I mean, it is Alabama a and which is kind of out of the way, and it is okay. the two schools it, near Montgomery, Tuskegee, which is outside of town, and Alabama State, and mm-hmm. um, if Washington drops you in Alabama, you're not going to matter anymore. I mean, he is the kingmaker in Alabama, and I so understand. there really is a consequence there, and it comes largely because of this rift with Du Bois. The larger public won't see that until a little bit later. Um, And most famously, um, it will come in the the, the book that ends up being part of this book's title, um, uh, Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk. Probably the most important early 20th century treatise on the black condition. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about that book is that Du Bois... Publishes it in 1903, but it's actually it's actually just a collection of his essays over the previous few years that he published in the Atlantic. OK. And except for one, except for one. And the one that he adds to that collection to make it into a book is an essay called Of Mr. Booker T. Washington and Other, which is <laughs> right. essentially just 20 pages of bashing Tuskegee, of bashing Washington, of bashing everything he stands for. And um, and doing so in a book that becomes the first, you know, black bestseller of the 20th century. I mean, <laughs> you know, a book that everyone reads. These were essays that were published in the Atlantic. And Du Bois, even though he does not have the stature of Washington yet, he's okay. going to end up taking over for Washington. But even though he doesn't have sure. that yet, he's still known. And that book is selling both to black and white audiences. And here mm. we have a treatise on why Booker T. Washington is destroying the world. Uh, And his argument essentially is that we live in a time where in the 1890s alone, this country averaged over 180 lynchings per year. Between 1900 and 1914, there are going to be more than a thousand more lynchings. And a lot of that is backed up by the academy. By universities, they are practicing various forms of pseudoscience that we tend to call social Darwinism or phrenology or all those kind of things. These 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 complete pseudoscience, not true at all, but uh, that that argue that white people are genetically superior to everyone else. And even though it's not true. That doesn't really matter. I mean, even today all the time we will we will drive down the street and we will uh, hear the radio uh, say something like a new discovery has been made in the journal science and uh, right and we'll say right. oh wow that's great but none of us none of us go to the library find the journal read it right. and decide whether or not we actually believe it. That's a great we point to do that because if it comes out of the academy we just accept it as
0: true. We just accept. it.
1: And so Du Bois's argument here is that, listen, even if people aren't atavistic clan member racists, they're still going to have these racist assumptions because the academy is kind of teaching them these things, and so they're going to assume it to be true. It's not their fault. It's just Mm -hmm. the way that they're conditioned. If that is true, he says, then all black leaders have to denounce this kind of compromise that makes us into second-class citizens. Because Mm -hmm. if you have a black president of a prestigious, quote-unquote, Southern University like Tuskegee, kind of making uh, claims that acknowledge or uh, admit to some kind of black inferiority, then what Mm -hmm. we are doing is not building up an economic base. We are playing into the hands of those who are trying to describe us as um, lesser than. Okay. And so we have to stop that. Mm-hmm. That, of course, will only alienate Booker Washington, who's <laughs> industrial education at Tuskegee is fine and that it is good and that he likes being famous. And so from there, the rift will grow. And and to, the, to the point where they will actually try to have summits at Carnegie Hall, there will be a, a very famous summit between the Du Bois camp and the Tuskegee camp where they where they try to hash out a compromise so that they won't hate each other, and it totally fails. Du Bois walks out um, and refuses <laughs> to even be there uh, because, of course, the reason they're able to have it there is because Washington has cultivated friends like Andrew Carnegie,
0: the sure, right.
1: white people. I mean that is kind of his valley, like, and and Du Bois resents that as well. Uh, that he gets this kind of white funding that Du Bois could never get. At this point, though Du Bois is often um, pilloried by a lot of Washington's followers as a an, an unknowledgeable northerner, he has been living in Atlanta for years. Uh, he has essentially founded Atlanta's School of Social Work. Um, and so even though he is a northerner, he does have this southern experience. This debate is happening relatively close to home. Um, Atlanta and Montgomery are not that far away. And so uh, this debate kind of has resonance for the black population, especially the black population that has not yet left on the Great Migration and that is just sitting there in the South imbibing these messages um, Mm -hmm. from these two leaders kind of very much in their midst. These two brilliant minds were just kind of going at it. Mm -hmm. Ultimately... Uh, that debate will get um, enlarged because Du Bois will decide that the academy isn't doing enough to fight for the things he believes in, and so he will start to mm-hmm. create rights organizations. In 1905, he creates Niagara, which itself Niagara is is a is a specifically a snub of Washington. He invites <laughs> what he calls the 28 most important Black leaders in the country to <laughs> Niagara Falls to have this meeting, and of course none of Washington, neither Washington nor any of his people are invited. Wow. And uh, that was kind of the whole idea. Um, and of course, the reason Niagara fails is partly because it is an all black movement trying to convince a group of white racists to be nice. That doesn't seem to work. But the other reason is because Washington openly sabotages it. Um, Washington will send spies to Niagara meetings. He will put advertisements in newspapers um, denouncing Niagara. He will he, – he cultivates editors of black newspapers and will refuse to advertise Tuskegee in those newspapers if they report favorably on Niagara. He very much takes a hand in trying to destroy it. Um and so Du Bois is forced to try again, this time with a bunch of kind of uh, pseudo abolitionists, these these children and grandchildren of the white liberal elite of the 19th century who want to help. Um, mm-hmm. And they ultimately, of course, in 1909, uh, the year after Niagara Falls, uh, Niagara fails, create the NAACP. Right. Uh, a, a, an almost entirely white organization and its first incarnation. Mm-hmm. And Jewish. Absolutely. And what's interesting about that is that they, most of the board of directors of the original NAACP, of course, Du Bois, the only black member of the board of directors of the NAACP at first, they had to be coached by Du Bois on the differences between the two leaders. They just assumed, you know that they could support Washington too. And Du Bois was was very clear, you can't really do that. We have just because we're both black and we get, give speeches doesn't mean we all alike. <laughs> we're not all the same. Exactly. And and so there had to be a lot of kind of uh um makeup work done by the NAACP to kind of understand that you really—they try early on to be uh, an organization that does not take sides in that debate, okay. but they find that that is going to be impossible. And um, eventually, uh, peacemaking between the Tuskegee camp and the, and the NAACP camp will fail, um, and uh, Washington will do his best to destroy the NAACP as well. Uh, he will actually. Washington will actually send notes uh, in in his lesser moments. He will actually send notes to the editors of white newspapers in various towns where NAACP meetings will be held so that they can put it in the paper in the hopes that white supremacists will come and break up those meetings. Oh my goodness. Um, And that is the level of vitriol that exists there. Um, If any of uh, our listeners uh, uh, kind of study lynchings in this country, They might be familiar that there are two lynching statistic bureaus that we have. The Mm -hmm. NAACP always kept kind of very detailed records on every lynching that they could find because papers were reporting on them. So did Tuskegee, and there are two things. And they often have different numbers for each year. But the reason why they each do independent kind of uh, studies is because – uh, there was Tuskegee and there was the NAACP and <laughs> the things shall meet. I mean, it was it was very much it's amazing. Uh, this kind of legacy that we don't trust your numbers and you're not going to trust our numbers and so we're going to have different numbers, even though they're clearly working to stop the same kinds of things. They're just doing so in two very different philosophically oriented ways that don't really, you know, don't necessarily connect. Mm. Ultimately, it's amazing. You know, the debate stops um, uh, when one of the voices goes away and uh, Washington will die in 1915. Um, Mm -hmm. And when he dies, while Tuskegee continues on and still remains throughout the 20th century, a kind of beacon of what black Southern education is and can be. And does end up taking on far more liberal arts in the years to come. Okay. Washington suffers from the fact that when he's dead, Du Bois gets to control the message. Mm. The one who's alive. Remember, we don't often think of it, but W. E. B. Du Bois lives into the 1960s. Um, right. I mean, he lives for a very long time, and never uh, in in his life. And he goes through a lot of phases. I mean, he will, he will go through a very interesting phase where he writes poetry and fiction. He will go through a communist phase. He will end up mm. d- rejecting the United States, and he will go live um, in Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana and mm. die in Ghana. He will not even die in the United States uh, because he is so captivated by Kwame Nkrumah and the New African Independence Movement. But through all of those different phases that he has later in his life from 1915 to the 1960s, he, he never dropped his bitterness at Berkeley Washington. And so every few years, there's always a new essay from the boys that comes out that just wants to remind people that he was right and Washington was wrong. And so wow. he gets to shape a legacy. And I
0: think what it, what,
1: it, what it does for us today, without kind of really understanding this, is that we get these two caricatures of people we see okay. We see Du Bois as this uppity Northerner with a silver spoon in his mouth that doesn't really understand the Black Southern experience, and, mm-hmm. and looks his nose down on what it's like to be black and Southern. And then on the other side we have this caricature of Booker T Washington as this Uncle Tom who gives in to white demands and mm-hmm. and belittles black education by making it industrial and not thinking that uh uh that black students can major in philosophy and things like that. Mm-hmm. Both of those caricatures are wrong. Um Both of these guys cared about black rights. They they just had two very different ways of doing things. Du Bois lived in the South for 20 years. He understood the black South. Uh, And to say he didn't is wrong. Washington cared about the black South. And to say that he just capitulated to whites at every turn is also wrong. His argument was, that being a southerner, being a slave, growing up at least early in his life, in the first few years of his life, as a slave, he understood that there were only certain messages that southern white people would listen to. And so okay. he chose to pick his battles based on the kind of fights he thought he could win. The boys went a different way. He said, no, we cannot compromise. We have to go at this full bore. I think the important thing to take from that debate is that neither side was necessarily wrong. They, okay. they were just uh, very antithetical to one another. Mm-hmm. But what that ends up doing is setting the, the, the bifurcated tracks of black rights thinking for the rest of the 20th century. We see a very clear line of those activists who make the case that we we do not want segregation, we do not want job discrimination, we do not want voting discrimination, and that we are going to go out and do whatever it takes to get there. And there are are that other side – well, actually, here's the interesting part about that. I would actually argue otherwise. I would actually argue that Malcolm X… And the, uh, the Nation of Islam and the resulting black power movement, when we see Huey in Oakland and, and we see Fred Hampton in Chicago, we see the Panthers, we see those kind of groups. I would actually argue that they are in the tradition of Booker Washington, that they are making the case that what black America needs is not integration is that it is a black economic infrastructure that creates a system whereby the black population can be equal without depending on white people. That mm-hmm. we can do this ourselves. And the reason we haven't been able to is because all of our black traditions are eroded through integration. Mm-hmm. The, the great example I like to use is if you take a packet of sugar and you put it in water, you have sugar and water, but you only see the water the sugar dissolves. Mm. Whenever you okay. have one culture that is dominant, that controls everything, when integration happens, this is the argument that Huey Newton made, it subsumes the, the lesser community into it. The smaller population that doesn't have the kind of uh, political power is going to go away. And so integration means act like white people, be more like white people, come to white education. And so um, because of that um, um, uh, black power advocates argued that we don 't want integration we want to pr- we want to nurture our values okay. we want to create separate economic enclaves that create powerful black communities that don't need a white infrastructure to work and wow. To be honest with you, that 's pretty much the same kind of thing that Booker Washington was saying. Okay, but if you say it in rural Alabama, it sounds like an Uncle Tom. If you say it in Harlem, it sounds <laughs> radical.
0: Very interesting.
1: Du Bois is uh, is kind of the lead-in to um, someone like, say, Martin Luther King,
0: mm-hmm. who makes
1: uncompromising stands against and in- segregation for integration, who fights for voting rights, and who does so through protest channels, and who makes himself. a a known commodity academically and publicly. And so I do think those corollaries continue on, but I actually think that it goes, we can draw our line from Washington to black power and from Du Bois to the first wave civil rights movement of SCF and people like that. I don't, I I think that's probably the the easiest way to kind
0: of understand how that, how that develops. I'm glad 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 you you took the time to explain that. Because that may be. Uh, it seems maybe counterintuitive, but. Right. Uh, but it makes sense. And I don't want to take up too much of your time here, um, Dr. Aiello. Sure. Can you hear me? Absolutely. OK. Yes. I don't want to take up too much of your time here, Dr. Aiello. I know that you've got classes to teach and uh, research to conduct, but I did want to ask you you know, additionally before we close. Uh, what type of current research or, or future research are you, are you interested in or, or are you going to be involved with?
1: Um, well, uh, over the summer, I just finished a manuscript on the black press uh, oh, okay, in the South in particular in the generation before the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, that's uh, the next big project, kind of understanding black newspapers in the South right before the Civil Rights Movement. Black newspapers often get pilloried as being far more conservative than Northern mm-hmm. papers like The Defender or The Courier or The Amsterdam News. Um, and so I think by understanding what black newspapers were saying in the 30s and 40s, right before first wave civil rights begins after mm-hmm. World War II, we can understand what the adults of the 1940s grew up understanding with black newspapers, um, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, so that we can get a better idea of what the civil rights mind looked like by understanding mm-hmm. what the press was doing, not, not in the north, but, but here in the south where, where the vast majority of the black population lived. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, all those stories about Pullman porters carrying down Chicago defenders and Pittsburgh couriers down to black. Right. That's true. That happened. But they were always supplements to papers like the Atlanta Daily World or oh. where you are, the Houston Informer. You know, papers mm-hmm. like that that were so important to those local communities. The reason we don't talk about them very much is because since white people in the South control all the libraries and everything else, we just don't have as many of them as we do uh, the defend. They weren't saved correct. in the same way that some of those northern papers were. So I have spent actually years upon years tracking down as many of those black southern newspapers as mm-hmm. I possibly could to try to get an idea of what they were saying and how they kind of informed black thinking uh, in that generation
0: before civil rights. Okay. Well, I would love to get you back when you complete that project so we can talk about that one as well. That sounds very interesting. I think our, our listeners would love uh, to hear about that. And just to make sure that um, we give your book, The Plug That It Needs, uh, The Battle for the Souls of Black Folk. W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, and the debate that shaped the course of civil rights by Dr. Thomas Aiello of Valdosta State University. Um, This is a great book, very well researched, very well documented. And if you if you heard um, Dr. Aiello here, you know that he knows his stuff on this topic. (laughs) So I I greatly uh, recommend you check out this book and some of his other works as well. I mean, he's a he's a noted uh, African-American history scholar. So, Dr. Ayala, I'm not going to take up too much more of your time today. Thank you so much for uh, uh, taking a few moments or a few minutes with us to, uh, you know, let us know about your book. And hopefully our listeners will go out there and pick it up. It's a it's a great book. It's an outstanding cover. If you get a chance to look at that cover, you're going to want to buy the book. It's, very, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very beautiful cover. All right. So we're we're going to uh, end it here. Thank you, sir. Thank and you so we'll, for having me. A- absolutely. And hopefully you'll come through Houston and uh, we can uh, sit down and chat a little bit about some of the local politics and local history. I would love it. All right. Take care, sir. And thank you all for listening to the New Books Network, our African-American studies channel. And we will see you next time. OK, hope you enjoyed the interview today with Thomas Aiello of Valdosta State University, his book, The Battle for the Souls of Black Folk, W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, and the debate that shaped the course of civil rights. We'll see you next time on the African American Studies channel of the New Books Network. This is James Stencil. Have a great day.